in your life, if you haven't noticed already, there's going to be people who don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus says that that's going to happen, at least in some cases, just as a result of following him. And so when those guys start making your life hard, how do you deal with it? You know, do you take revenge or do you not? And how do you behave? What does loving your enemies really look like? It says, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. And so you guys know Saul, the first king of Israel, and you remember how that whole thing starts. They don't have a king. Well, actually, they do. It's God. But they want to be like all the other pagan nations, and so they ask God for a king, and that upsets God. So God says, I'll give you exactly what you're asking for. You know, all these other kings, they're tyrants to their people and make them pay taxes, and it's not a pretty picture. And there's this guy who really starts out looking pretty humble. He doesn't want to be king, and his name's Saul. And even when the prophet Samuel points him out and says, you're going to be the next king, he's hiding behind some boxes. And then he stands up and he's a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And everybody says, ooh, he has the stature of a king. This is going to be great. Uh, But he's not sold out for the Lord. And eventually the pride and the power, it, it goes to his head. When they finish a battle... Uh, he had specific instructions to destroy the enemies and he keeps them around and he takes their stuff and he kind of flirts with the the king of, of the other uh, civilization, if you will, kind of keep him around to mock him and he didn't follow instructions. And then he's supposed to wait for the prophet Samuel to come give a sacrifice and Saul's like, well, he's a couple minutes late, so I'm going to do this myself. And so he arrogantly assumes the place of priest and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And then Samuel shows up and reams him out. It doesn't go well. And he chews out King Saul and Samuel turns away. And as he turns away, King Saul grabs his robe. It rips. And then Samuel says to King Saul, God is going to take your kingdom away. He's going to rip it away just like you ripped my robe. and He's going to give it to somebody else. And then he leads Samuel to anoint a boy, David. And David's fame grows. Certainly after he kills Goliath, he joins Saul's army and he climbs the ranks there. Saul's always trying to give him assignments to see if this guy dies. (laughs) But he keeps coming back more victorious than before. And they're all singing. Saul's killed his thousands and David kills his ten thousands. And now Saul is jealous. These guys used to be friends. These guys used to confide in each other. David would play the harp for Saul and kind of help soothe his mind. But now uh, Saul has turned to continually trying to kill David. In the previous chapter, in chapter 23, King Saul was chasing David and God miraculously delivers David um, by drawing Saul away to go fight the Philistines. The Philistines invade home, so Saul's got to leave to go protect home. But now, as soon as he's done with the Philistines, he's back to pursuing David in En Gedi. En Gedi has a canyon. There's a creek there with waterfalls. It's kind of like an oasis in the desert. Beautiful place. It's a great hideout for David. It's a place where he could have seen anybody who was opposing him coming for miles. But there's water. It's an easy place to defend. It's a good place for them to be. And Saul chooses 3,000 
chosen men, these are the super ninjas, these are the best fighters that he can muster from Israel, and he's going to go after David. David has 600 guys, and so they're going to be outnumbered here about 5 to 1. And verse 3 says, So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went to attend to his needs. Uh, So David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave there. Shepherds would take their sheep to the cave, and they would pick these caves that would they'd make a sheepfold there so they could go and take their sheep there. Uh, so this would have been probably not higher than you can stand, uh, but probably, you know, not very tall, but deep with crevices uh, behind them, probably obviously fitting David's 600 men. Probably not a tall place, but mazy and swirly and, and deep. And so it says he, King Saul, he had to attend to his, his needs. And so the Bible, you know, it's a real book with real people who are living real lives. And uh, we're grateful for that. But here you see this episode where, you know, he, a guy's got to go to the bathroom. People go to the bathroom in the Bible. If you ever worked outside and you're a guy, I should say, you know, and you got to go number one, you're probably not looking for a vast amount of shelter. You know, when you got to go number two, you look for a lot more shelter. <laughs> and that appears to be what Saul is doing here. And interesting, you know, all, all arranged by God. Saul's got to go number two, and he happens to pick the cave that David's hiding here. And why does God do this? I mean, this is God's going to use this to test David. Saul went into the cave alone. You know, we think, well, what about his guards? You know, the guards are probably like, do you want us to go in there? No, I've been hanging around you guys all day. Leave me alone. So the guards are happy, and the king's happy, and, and David's men are happy. You know? <laughs> And so Saul thinks he's safe. It's probably hard to see as he enters the cave. His his eyes are adjusting to the dark. And in verse 7, it says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose, thinking this is my chance, and he secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to this man, said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, the Lord made him king, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. He restrained them. There's a, an argument going on. He's got to settle these guys down. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. It's a little difficult to relate to this in some sense in our culture. We don't expect men to hunt us down like Saul was hunting David down and have to go find shelter in a cave. What we can relate to is that very often is that our worst enemies were once friends. And David and Saul, they used to be friends. In those times, that's when we want to hurt people. It's when we feel betrayed, and that pain becomes very difficult to manage. We just want to hurt the other guy and react. The men of David said, um, it appears to be that they're having a conversation here, right? I mean... Uh, I'm guessing there's a lot of white noise. You know, why, does, why isn't King Saul hearing this? I mean, you got 3,000 uh, soldiers outside. There's probably a lot of armor clanking going on. And so they seem to be able to talk to each other without Saul hearing it. But what they say is, this is a God thing. God has arranged all of this so that you can kill this guy and we can be set free. He's made our lives miserable. King Saul's finally going to get it. 
David's men, these guys are, the Bible says, in debt. You know, they were distressed. So they're all stressed out. And they're bitter at Saul. And they got nothing better to do. And they see the virtue in David. And so they join him. These guys are going to form one of the greatest fighting forces that Israel will ever see. And there's training in this for them, too. They're going to grow from this experience as well. God orchestrates this. David's men believe they know why, and it's to kill Saul. So they say, it's your chance, David. Now is the time. He took your house. He took your wife. He took your job. Now you can end it. You remember when uh, King Saul offers his daughter to David once he performs certain tasks and Saul's thinking well he's gonna I'll just give him a really hard task and he won't make it and he'll come back one time he says bring back a a hundred Philistine foreskins and that's Saul Saul's a mess I mean Saul's making it like a holy war against the Philistines you know I mean you think about how they're gonna receive that and how they're gonna get upset about the thing Uh, and David comes back with 200 (laughs) and he receives King Saul's daughter uh, King Saul's daughter helps David escape and to spare his life. And then when David leaves, King Saul gives that daughter to another man. And so he's taken his wife, his position in the army is gone, his house is gone, everything's gone, and King Saul has taken it. And so David approaches, he's going to kill Saul, and instead he cuts the robe. In that culture, when you wore a robe, you had a hem of your robe, of your garment, and it symbolized uh, your identity. There was some embroidery there that you wore like a badge. You know, it's sort of like um, uh, when you're a decorated military general, there are some badges there to describe what you've accomplished and what you've done and some things about you. Uh, There are people who try to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. You know, at the bottom of their robes, they had a a lining, a blue lining, that symbolized their identity as a a rabbi. Um, identified them as rabbis and so interesting you have this sequence where the prophet Samuel is turning away and King Saul grabs his robe and tears it I'm going to give your kingdom God's going to take your kingdom away give to somebody else and here you have King David taking the hem of Saul's robe the part that identifies him with king and he's taking it for himself and so this is, um, you would understand why this is convicting to David because he's realizing he's taking this matter completely into his own hands and not relying on God one bit. He could have taken Saul's life, but it is God that holds the breath of every man. It's Daniel 5.23. He doesn't take revenge. He realizes God made Saul king and David is supposed to serve him. It's wrong to kill your own king or your own president or anything like that. Um, what is all of this? What is God doing here? And God is using Saul's life to train David. Sometimes God promises us things, but wants to keep his promises and fulfill them in a certain way that leads us into them a certain way where we grow. Uh, We can't even dream of the way that he fulfills promises in our lives at times, but it's usually pretty amazing when those things come to fulfillment. Our job is to obey God, love our enemies, Uh, We're allowed to defend ourselves, but that's not the situation here. David is not defending himself. He's mocking his king, threatening him with his life. David had an easy out from all the hardships he was enduring. He could have stopped all the suffering for him and his men right then by killing King Saul. Uh, He would have been victorious, but obviously it would have come at the cost of being disobedient to God. And so we're, we're to be like Jesus. You see Jesus do the same thing. When Jesus is tempted three times in the desert, 
uh, that last temptation, Satan takes him up and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you just bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these kingdoms of the world. And D- Jesus could have passed up the cross and still fulfilled his mission in attaining all of us, but obviously he would have had to have been disobedient to God to do it. And this is the same thing that's going on with David here. He's to obey God and not simply accomplish the task his way, but to do it God's way. So David cuts the robe, and something in his heart bothers him. You know, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, and we've all been there. Uh, Saul is there because God put him there, and here I am playing games with his robe. Saul has hurt me, but the Bible says that vengeance is God's, and he's the one that's supposed to deal with it. And David has these words of Scripture hidden in his heart, and he knows what's right. This insane hatred from Saul, it didn't create hate in David's heart. There's some conviction here. He's got a soft heart. He prayed when Saul would make his life hard, and Jesus would heal his heart. And because his heart was healed, David doesn't hate Saul. When he's in this moment, he's ready to listen to God. Other issues here is David has to worry about what others are going to think of him, his army, if he shows mercy to the enemy. These guys could easily turn on him and say, well, this is the guy we're following. Clearly, this is the wrong guy. He had the perfect opportunity to lead us against the opposition, and he didn't do it. David says, I'm not touching my master's anointed, and he's got to keep his servants from getting out of hand. So David comes back, and these soldiers are probably going, you know, what What are you doing? What What do you got, a piece of his robe? What's that about? You get back over there, and you kill him. And he's got he's to settle them down. He's got to restrain them, it says. So somehow David disagrees with his friends, and he keeps them united, likely just explaining his action and his regret. And, you know, these guys, they love the Lord. They love that David loves the Lord. And when David shows this humility towards God and trust in God, this is convicting to them too. When the Holy Spirit whispers to your heart, this generally isn't something that you can overreact to. You go back, you make sure that person gets an apology, you shower them with blessings. You usually can't overdo that, (laughs) especially when the Holy Spirit's guiding you. So these guys, they see David's heart in not killing Saul, and they're saying basically, well, this this stinks, but we understand. And in verse 8, Saul leaves the cave unharmed, And then it says, David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. David takes a big risk here. He wants to show Saul his heart in the matter and repentance towards him. In verse nine, it says, and David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. He calls him father. And that was something that he called King Saul when they were friends. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe, I did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the ancients says, Wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue, a dead dog, a flea? 
Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. And so David, he holds up the hem of the garment of the robe, his kingly designation. And he says, I'm not wicked. If I were, you would be dead. Look who you're chasing. I'm not worth it. I'm a dead dog. I'm not going to hurt you. You are God's anointed. However, you notice that David does call Saul out on his sin. And David is showing his attitude towards Saul's sin. You know, what you're doing is not righteous. God is going to judge it. You know, but he's kind to him and he's, that he spares his life. This kindness turns away the wrath of Saul. It, it will influence your enemies to leave you alone. And so David's actions said, God avenges me, I am trusting him. In verse 16, it says, So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul hears David's voice, and you can tell there's this remembrance of their old friendship. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul hears David's voice. And he weeps because of David's mercy that's been shown to him and God's. Saul treated David like an enemy, but David demonstrates virtue towards Saul. In verse 20, it says, And now I know, King Saul says, And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. Interesting. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. He says, please don't cut off my descendants after me. And normally that's what would happen, is when a new kingship came into power, um, the king would kill all of the previous king's descendants and family members to eliminate their claim to have a right to the throne. And so... Um, Saul knows that's the way of the world, and he's wondering if that's going to be the way of David. And so he asks him not to, not to take out any of his descendants. And David promises that he's not going to do it. And then you see David, he doesn't just go walk hand in hand with Saul. <laughs> he goes back to the stronghold. David knows better. Uh, there's a strong temptation here for Saul to immediately uh, turn on David and reject the words that he's spoken. If Saul lives his life right, then David's going to find out about it, and he'll know it'll be safe to return at that point. Saul is a guy who probably, if you analyzed him, reading all the accounts and, and the way he expresses himself all throughout his life, you might diagnose this guy with schizophrenia. I think you probably would in our modern time. Uh, he's a guy who is, you know, now I love David, now I hate David. Now I'm like this, now I'm like that. I love my son, now I'm throwing a spear at him. And now I'm trusting God, now I'm not. Now I like the prophet Samuel, now I hate the prophet Samuel. Now I'm praying to God, now I'm killing all his priests. There's all this stuff going on where he's just a complete mess. He's depressed, he's paranoid, he's worried. 
And so I wanted to say something about mental illness and just kind of the, the Christian the Christian counseling 101 that you, you have when you deal with these kinds of issues. Turn to Genesis 4. I'm going to take you to two places, Genesis 4, and we'll look at James 5. Let's see here. Oh, why not? Let's touch on some other things here while we're here. You see in Genesis 3.15... And I will put enmity between you and the woman, God is speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is the first prophecy that you have um, of a redeemer, of a Messiah, one who will crush a spiritual redeemer, who will crush the head of a spiritual enemy. And so they understand this promise in Genesis 3.21 It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And this is where it appears that God sets up the sacrificial system. He doesn't do this without setting up an altar and making an animal sacrifice. And notice how this is the the symbol taking place here. There's an innocent animal that dies and it covers another. He uses the skins to cover Adam and Eve. And so there's a sacrificial system being instituted here that points to Jesus. And now in verse 1 in chapter 4, it says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. In Hebrew, the words from and the are not there. It says, I have acquired a man, Lord. The idea there is that she thinks her firstborn son is the Messiah. The grammar is the same in verse 2 as it is in verse 1. It says, Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. And that lets you know that the brother's name is Abel, right? Just like in the first sentence, it says, I have acquired a man, Lord. It's saying Yahweh is the son. She's expecting a God-man in fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis 3. And then he's not it. And then she has another kid and she calls him Abel. Abel means vanity. <laughs> this is all a waste of time. He's never coming. We're hopeless. <laughs> and so she's a little bit depressed about this. That the first son is obviously not the Messiah at this time. At least she feels like she understands that. In verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. That that phrase there, countenance fallen, that's downcast, that's depressed. And what you see here is God is not happy with Cain's sacrifice because he's not abiding by the sacrificial system that God instituted. There's no innocent animal dying to cover his sin. And when they did that, you know, there was a, um, it was much like we have barbecues today with our families. They would have a barbecue with their family and with God. But there was a religious significance to it where they were um, saying a prayer and going through a religious ritual that helped them understand that they did some things that were wicked and they needed uh, the grace from God to continue. They needed to be restored to him. They needed to be forgiven. And Cain is approaching that whole thing and saying, you know what, this is what I worked for. He's, he's the farmer. Uh, Abel seems to be the herdsman. And so Cain doesn't abide by the rituals. He's proud of, of what he's done, and he's giving that to the Lord, and the Lord's not happy with it. And so he's in sin, 
and his countenance has fallen. He's depressed. Now look at verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Why are you depressed? And he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So interesting. God says, why are you angry? He says, I'll tell you why you're angry. When you do good, you feel good. When you don't do good, you don't feel good. And that's why you feel the way that you feel. And modern psychology in our day is a train wreck. And the way that it generally goes, it's it's of a helpful heart. But what happens is traditional therapy is you come to my office and I allow you to talk about your problems and through the process of you sharing and grieving and going through some things that have scarred you, you get better and that kind of helps the grieving process and I counsel you through that and everything gets better. And sometimes people do get better. I don't know if it's as a result from that. Uh, There was a study that was done not that long ago. I'm I'm grateful for it. it. It was a guy, he was probably a real smart aleck like me but anyway what he did was he said uh, he set up a study where there was a group of people getting traditional counseling and therapy and the other group of people were taking a cold bath (laughs) and two-thirds of the population from each group got better (laughs) so the results of taking a cold bath were the same of of that of going to therapy and uh, you know sometimes people just get better you know sometimes people just need time to grieve and go through stuff and, and they just get better This is a little bit different when you're talking about a guy like Saul. Sin makes you insane. Sin makes you depressed. And it can be as simple as knowing that you have some simple responsibilities and not doing them. That'll depress you because you know you should have done something you didn't do it. It can be house chores. Okay? And so um, biblical counseling 101 for somebody who doesn't seem to have any problems but seems depressed if there's no chemical imbalance, sometimes there are chemical imbalances, and that affects the way we behave and the way we behave and our emotions. And I'm I'm recovering from you know head trauma. You know I'm a little different. You know so sometimes that that stuff happens. Um, but if you know it's not any of that, then where you start is that there's some sin going on in the person's life that they've been carrying, and maybe it's a lot of it, and that is what's depressing them, and that's where you need to start, and that's what you need to deal with when you're counseling that person. And the world obviously doesn't want anything to do with that. We make excuses for people. Well, you were a victim, and that's why this happens to you. And when then you say when they're a victim, they have absolutely no hope, and they're trapped. And that leads to more depression, and it can actually lead to um, more severe ramifications in how that person treats themselves. Telling them you have a sin problem, and that's why you're acting that way, gives them hope. And so a lot of times what a Christian counselor will recommend is, you need to make a list of all the sins that you know that you are having, that you're struggling with, that you feel regret about. And every time you, you know, think of one of those sins, that's what's depressing you. And so what you need to do is you need to make a list. You need to go start apologizing to the people that you've sinned against. And that greatly relieves people when they start going through that exercise and mending fences and, and um, reestablishing relationships with people that they've sinned against. And that, that's sort of where um, James 5 goes when you look at James 5. James 5, I'll start in verse 16, but, or verse 13, but it's 16 that you want to pay attention to. In James 5, in verse 13, oh, I'm not there, hold on. 
It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then it says this, confess your trespasses, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When people talk to me about relationship issues, uh, a lot of times there's a lot of pain involved in whatever's happened. And they don't like thinking about it. They don't like suffering from it. They want to get over it. And a lot of times the only way they think they're going to get over it is for that person to come to them and ask for forgiveness. You know, and a lot of times that's the case. A lot of times when we're mad at somebody and we're experiencing that type of thing, a lot of times their sin against us was a lot greater than our sin against them. And so maybe we're trying to take some high ground by just, you know, it's not good, but saying, you know, they need to come to me. I'm not going to them. And what this verse is saying is that you need to go confess your sins to that person. That's really when you get healed. That's really when you can put these things behind you. It's when you can, you know, we're, we're all sinful. We all do dumb stuff. We all make mistakes. And I'm sure in any relationship that you have in your life, there's something you can apologize for to that person, even if it's a good, healthy relationship. And so what this is telling you to do is when you want to be healed, especially in a relational sense, you go to that person, you explain all the things that you did to screw up the relationship, and you ask for forgiveness, and then you move on. And then what you're going to feel is all that depression lifted from you. That's not going to bother you anymore. And that's healing from God. God's in that, is what James is saying here. So Saul's a mess, and he will continue on this path. He never once repents, never apologizes. He has moments of clarity here like he does with David, and that's just another opportunity for him to get right with the Lord, but he doesn't do it. For now, these guys are friends. They make up. You know, this forgiveness uh, is, is an act of faith that David shows. Um, you know, and there's no guarantee the person's not going to hurt you again, right? Especially when you least expect it. You know, people get jerked around and all kinds of... <clears throat> into all kinds of emotional compromises, and it's just hard to trust people sometimes. You can trust Jesus. God will deal with the offenses of others, and you just simply don't need to worry about that issue. We're just talking about trusting the Lord here. That's, that's really the bottom line, and that's why it's difficult. It sounds easy, but it's really difficult. Um, when you really think about David, if David hadn't run to this cave, he'd be dead. If David hadn't ducked the couple spears that Saul chucked at him, He'd be dead. <clears throat> if he hadn't fled his house when Saul's soldiers came to kill him, he'd be dead. And you can get the perception really fast that we're the ones that are in control when we're, we're trying to just, you know, make decisions that help us live <laughs> and, and continue. And if we don't do everything within our power to manage the situation, we feel like we're going to get crushed. We're going to get extinguished under the burden of life and under the sinful planet. In those moments, in the midst of this plan, when it feels like we have orchestrated the events, that's when we need to understand that God is really the one in control. When you're fighting off people who are destroying your name, who are attacking your integrity, or trying to shame you, it feels like if you let it go on, you're going to 
lose your job or go broke or, or lose a ministry or lose, lose something as a, result of what's, uh, as a result of this attack. And if you're in that situation, you think where David is, suddenly faced with a situation where you have an opportunity to step on the neck of your enemy. You could intellectually shame them to a place where they will never crawl out of the hole that they run to. Uh, you're basically doing to them what they've been trying to do to you sometime for long periods of time. And you can embarrass them in front of everyone and reveal their sin and their role and the things that they've done that everyone would shame them for. And it seems as though God is giving you the upper hand because you have the opportunity to do this. And all of your friends, they love you and they see what you're going through. And so guess what their advice is going to be? <laughs> Let them have it. Right? <laughs> this is your chance. God's taking care of you, man. <laughs> they hate seeing you hurt. And so they're going to be led to emotional compromise and tell you to take it to them. And in this sense with David, you know, maybe your pride gets the best of you. You start with a jab, a condescending remark, just to let them know I could make you wish that you never started this. And then conviction takes hold. You know, what am I doing? What does God really want here? Scripture is ringing in your ears. You know you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to pray for them. Love those who hate you. And so we need to remember, God will avenge. He's in control. He protects. He lives. That's what we put our faith in. In the midst of that trial, you know, what, what is God doing with all that? And what he's doing is he's making you more like him. He's bringing conviction on other people that are watching you, just like David's soldiers are with David. You know, and how many of us try to do things our own way, right? <laughs> we get tired of doing things God's way. You know, Lord, if I do this your way, it's not going to work out because it hasn't worked out yet, so I need to do things my way now. Uh, that's what we feel like. And if we don't do that, then God, I'm, I'm never going to get a raise. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to get promoted. I'm never going to gain influence. I'm never going to stop getting stepped on. And so I'm going to do things my way. Because God, clearly you're not looking out for me. Look at the situation I'm in. David could have said that. Saul will continue to choose his own way. He's going to live for himself, and that will end in his destruction. David will live a life that's characterized after chasing after God's own heart. Both of them are faced with the same question. Will I trust God with my life? Will I submit to God? Will I remember his word? Will I live a life of integrity that he wants me to have? Even when it feels like I'm doing it to my own destruction. Because of the appearance of things in your life, you may feel like you're in control. And we need to understand that God's the one on the throne. And that's not so hard. We understand. You know, fine. God's in control. Um, if God's in control, the bigger issue becomes, well, why does he keep guys like King Saul around? I mean, Saul murdered 85 innocent priests. He kills 85 pastors. These, he's hunting for David, and they don't want to rat on David, and they're all ready to die, and they die. Uh, Saul kills all of them. One of them gets away. He becomes David's priest. Saul hunted David for four years. He freaked out David so bad, he went and lived with the Philistines for another four years, just too scared to hang around Israel anymore. He was disobedient to God out of fear. And so he had to work through all that stuff and all the trauma that, that Saul put him through. You know, how many lives will King Saul destroy before God intervenes and deals with it? And the answer is, however many people God wants to test and train for the work that he has for them. 
That's what he's doing with David, and he's doing it with all of his men, too. Um, some um, of these guys pass the test by dying. That's what the priests do. You know, the priests weren't scared of dying. They knew where they were going when they died. They knew what they were doing. Uh, they knew the only control that they had was in the decision to live for God or live for themselves. The same decision King Saul and David are making. And that opportunity is continually offered to us. One day it won't be there, right? And one day we're not going to have the opportunity to make that decision anymore. So I know you guys, I know you guys are all in. <laughs> um, you know, just a, a word on the gospel, right? When I'm talking to people about the gospel, if you were there last week, you kind of heard me go through it with, with the guests that we had. Um, but, you know, the first part of it is creation. God made you for a relationship. Much for the same reason that we have children, we just like these awesome little kids running around that we can share our lives with. And that's what God wants for you. Some people don't get past God created. God made the world. Paul says in Romans 1, something doesn't come from nothing. In Romans chapter 2, he says, um, you all know that you're sinners because when you accuse people of doing things that are wrong, you know you've done the same things. And so he says, you know there's a God because this planet doesn't make itself and you know you're a sinner and that should drive you to repentance before God. Everybody knows. We're the only species on the planet that knows right and wrong and continually chooses to do what's wrong. And we all intuitively understand that when we do things that we know are wrong, we deserve a punishment. And that's where we stand. We commit sins every day. We sin less with the Holy Spirit, but we still have the problem where sometimes we choose selfish desire over the Holy Spirit. Um, that's where we sit. We sit in a place of sin where we deserve a punishment. In Habakkuk 1.13, he says, uh, God says through Habakkuk, I won't even look upon evil. He can't look upon evil. It's a figure of speech that means he can't go along with evil, otherwise it's like he's condoning it. It's like he's okay with it. And so he remains separated from us because he's perfectly righteous and holy, and we are committing evil acts deserving of his wrath and judgment. And of course, the, the wrath of God is a mega theme in the Bible. Hell is not talked about a lot in Christian circles anymore. It obviously should be. And I think when people understand more about what it is and how you get there, I think it, it helps them out and it seems a lot more fair than it is because God doesn't send people there. It's just a place where we choose to go. All these guys in the Bible, guys like James, they spend a lot of time explaining to you that God is the source of everything that is good. James says every perfect thing comes from God. And so what that lets you know is um, God lays out the terms. He says, if I created you and I love you and I want to spend eternity with you and you reject me, then you're going to be without me. And if I'm the source of everything that's good, you're going to go to a place where there is nothing good. And it's just a place where you choose to go as a result of rejecting me. And all he wants is a relationship. And we don't deserve one. We deserve a punishment for the sins we've committed. And so what God does is he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the wrath of God in our place. He didn't deserve it. He came and lived a perfect life. He worked amazing miracles where he healed people and restored people and raised people from the dead because he loved them and had compassion for them. And people killed him for that, for claiming to be God and doing these things, showing that he was God. We deserve the wrath of God, not Jesus, but he took it in our place. And then he showed us his power. He demonstrated it when he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, showing us that when we believe him, when we trust him, that we are trusting a God that has that power to overcome sin and overcome death. That he tells us when we believe this, we don't perish, we get eternal life. We get restored into a relationship with him when we believe that he died for our sins and took that wrath in our place. 
uh, we confess our sins to him. We accept his payment on our behalf. And when we do that, we're just letting God know, I know who you are, and I know who I am. (laughs) And that's good enough for God. That's all he wants, is for us to know who he is and love him and choose him. And the last part of the gospel message, I mean, you have the creation, you have our sin problem, the fall of man, you have the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, the third part, and the fourth part is the restoration of all things. It's heaven. It's back to the garden, you know, where everything is perfect and restored. And and I like streets of gold and all that stuff, but (laughs) the reason heaven is so good is because God is there, and he's the source of everything that's good. He's the one that redeemed us. He's the guy that we get to spend eternity with. Let's pray. Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for fighting our battles. And uh, Lord, we pray for this ministry. Lord, we pray that um, your word is uh, rightly taught and prospered, Lord, that we're used um, to be filled with your spirit and reach people. Thank you for all the good that you give us, Lord. I pray that um, you know there may be enemies in our lives, Lord. A lot of times there's somebody coming to mind <laughs> when we think about these things that we just need to go to and confess sin to and try to get things right with, Lord. And if there's somebody... Uh, in in the people's lives uh, that are here. There's somebody that's supposed to apologize to you, Lord. I pray that you bring that to their mind now so they know what to do with it. Um, Thank you, Jesus. Amen.